1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
0: I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode of Rational Security for August 7th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's Rational Security episode is entitled, The Small World After All Edition. In the episode, Alan, Quinta, and Scott sit down with Natalie Orpet to discuss the drone strike that killed Ayman El-Zawahiri, a Justice Department indictment of a Russian agent, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. This is Rational
2: Security.
3: I just want to say that I worked out my schedule for today perfectly so that I could record in studio for another podcast and then also record in studio with two out of three of you. And then you all abandoned me. So here I am all alone.
0: But you sound marvelous. We
1: just wanted to make sure you would sound really good, Quentin. Exactly.
0: I admittedly, I don't think I have COVID, knock on woods, but I had a random COVID exposure the other day. And like, this is the new reality. Basically, like... Every week, if you're hanging out with the wrong crew one weekend, I actually had two COVID exposures I found out actually earlier today over the weekend. And it's like, well, oh, well, that's 48 hours. I've got to go isolate myself till I know I'm not sick. You can
1: resolve this by having no friends.
0: <laughs> that is that is an alternative strategy. <laughs> he's he's already tried that. It's not enough. You can have friends They can be imaginary. They can be strictly <laughs> virtual.
3: I don't know if imaginary friends can give
2: you COVID though.
0: No, they'd give you imaginary COVID, aka cooties, and that's fine. That's
2: something. <laughs> oh, that you know, that maybe that's what cooties always was.
0: I, I will say that
2: I sadly can never join you in person because I have a chronic case of upper midwesternosis, Gnosis. And I love it. And I love it. And you know what? I am striking back against the tyranny of localism, presentism, real spacism. I am I am more than happy to exist as a disembodied face on our cloud-based audio platform forever and ever amen
0: rants like that are why the three of us are going to be in person so we can sign <laughs> conversations that you're not a part of touché Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Securities. Doing that whole just making the singular plural for a sequel sort of thing this week, because I'm running out of ideas. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are joined by one of our regulars and favorite special guests, Lawfare Executive Editor, (laughs) Natalie Orpit. Natalie, thank you for joining us this week.
1: Hello, friends, and way to sneak in that I'm one of your favorite guests.
0: Well, you're kind of our boss. So we have to suck up to you. I think this is the general strategy.
3: <laughs> it's an excellent
0: one. I approve.
3: Yeah, if we don't do this, Natalie, we'll just veto all of our proposals for articles.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know, you—I don't, I don't like edits. So I'm trying to talk you out of them through kindness. Uh, but we're excited to have you back on the show as it's been a little while for what we are calling the Small World After All edition. Because this week, we are talking about a couple of topics that, at least at first blush, seem to have a lot to do with the rest of the world, but actually have ties bringing them on back home that tie into some of the more domestic issues we tend to cover here on Rational Security. For our first topic, another one bites the dust. This past weekend, an American drone strike successfully killed yet another major terrorist leader, this time Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in downtown Kabul while apparently avoiding any civilian casualties or significant collateral damage. What does this strike tell us about the Biden administration's counterterrorism strategy and the role it plays in his broader global agenda? Topic two, maybe he just mixed up his St. Petersburgs? (laughs) In Florida... The Justice Department, that is, that is a line from a from a defense, a very desperate defense attorney who may be implicated in this case soon. <laughs> because in Florida, the Justice Department has indicted Russian agent Alexander Viktorovich Ayanov for engaging in an array of political activities on behalf of fringe political candidates and organizations with the alleged goal of promoting political instability at the Russian government's behest. What light does this indictment shed on Russian interference in American politics, both in the past and moving forward? I would just like to say, with respect to St. Petersburg's, I can't think
2: of two cities with the same name that are as different as St. Petersburg, Russia, and St. Petersburg, Florida.
3: <laughs> Bethlehem.
0: Bethlehem, yeah. I think there's a
3: there's a Lima, Ohio.
0: There's a couple, there there's places. a couple of choices in there, honestly, but this is a pretty good one. This is a pretty good one, at least for this purpose. Regardless, for our third topic, topic three, the bully cockpit. Over reported objections from the Biden administration, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has flown to Taiwan, making her the most senior U.S. official to visit the hotly contested island in more than two decades and raising China's ire at what many say is a sensitive moment. Is her trip helpful or foolhardy? And what does it tell us about Congress's role in U.S. foreign relations? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Uh, So on Monday night,
2: President Biden announced that a Sunday early morning U.S. airstrike in Afghanistan had killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was one of the founders, along with Osama bin Laden, of the terrorist group al-Qaeda, and who had been the head of al-Qaeda since bin Laden's death in 2011. Interestingly, an operation that was itself ordered by uh, Joe Biden's Democratic predecessor, Barack Obama. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about uh, how those two were similar and different in their approach to counterterrorism operations. Also, here he was killed by a drone strike in uh, an upscale neighborhood of, of Kabul. He had previously been living in the, the mountainous regions between Afghanistan and Pakistan, but in particular, with the uh, Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan in uh, 2021, uh, he decided to upgrade his accommodations, uh, come in from the cold, uh, and move into uh, apparently a nice part of Kabul. As of now, reports suggest that the operation was, at least tactically speaking, a total success with only uh, Al-Zawahiri killed as he was uh, sitting on his uh, balcony. Apparently, the, though I think this is still being reported out, the, the drone was, uh, was fitted with knives <laughs> rather than explosives. Yes, apparently that's a ninja drone. Uh, yeah, there are all sorts of grisly ways to uh, kill people, though uh, in ways that are incredibly precise. So lots to talk about here. But the first I just want, and I'll ask you this, Scott. Just to kind of give us a sense, how big of a deal is this? You know, what was uh, al-Zawahiri up to um, at the time of his death? And what will this do to al-Qaeda in particular?
0: Absolutely. Zawahiri is a very historically significant figure. As you noted, he was a founder of al-Qaeda. He has been kind of an ideological and political leader of al-Qaeda Um, really for several decades now. He's believed to have been most directly involved actually in the 1998 embassy bombings that really brought al-Qaeda onto the scene, um, played a more direct role in that. A lot of reporting speculates and research speculates that he actually had a pretty limited role in in planning the 9-11 attacks, if any, although he appears to have been aware of them and engaged with al-Qaeda after the fact and, uh, you know, the effort to, to... combat U.S. uh, soldiers in Afghanistan and other places on other fronts. He's played this leading role in Al-Qaeda for the last decade or so. You know, it's a little less clear how directly day-to-day operationally he was involved as opposed to kind of broad strategic and ideological and rhetorical support. Um, But he's been in hiding for pretty much the majority of this time. At various points, it's been speculated that he was already dead or very sick. Same rumors about bin Laden for many years before he was eventually taken out in that U.S. raid in 2011. But, uh, you know, he's nonetheless played this very central role in this organization, How significant it is as a counterterrorism objective beyond the symbolic and political value of it, I think is another question. Al-Qaeda is a diminished entity, both because of arguably, at least by some accounts, U.S. counterterrorism efforts for the last 20 years and allied counterterrorism efforts, but also because of factionalization, kind of divisions within the global movement that Al-Qaeda at one point was really the main hub of, in part, at least by some accounts, uh, because of Zawahiri's own shortcomings in leadership and lack of strategic vision, in part because he was constantly in hiding and therefore had a very difficult job in leading and kind of building an organization uh compared to certain other figures so for a lot of ways it's i think that there's a good question to be asked here how much the makes a difference either for al-qaeda or for global terrorism more generally um, because it's, it appears to be a diminished figure in a diminished organization but i think for the biden administration the more significant impact of this is that it appears is arguably at least, and they're certainly going to spin it this way, as a proof of concept for the -the over-the-horizon counterterrorism model that the administration indicated it was going to rely on when it left Afghanistan. That was the bargain. It said, we can leave Afghanistan, but we can still Target terrorist targets here and interrupt their operations. And this appears to have done that effectively, again, with very limited collateral damage, which is particularly necessary after the horrendous drone strike on um, a suspected, what people thought at the time was a terrorist vehicle headed towards Kabul airport about a year ago uh, during the downfall of the government that ended up killing a array of civilians, including many Afghan children, and a clear case of mistake by the U.S. military. Um, so in the aftermath of that, this stands out as a notable success if accounts of it having no collateral damage which are true. It certainly seems like an operational success. Again, in my mind, the question is how replicable is it at scale? How big a strategic difference could it make? Um, But certainly from a political optics perspective, it seems like a big win for the Biden administration.
1: Yeah, I think the the one thing I'll say, though, um, which I will highly recommend to folks, um, some coverage that we have on Lawfare from several different experts uh, that should be up by the time this episode releases tomorrow, a few of which are up at the time of recording. But I think it depends on how you're defining what al-Qaeda's relative threat is. So to the extent you're talking about al-Qaeda as the threat that you know in 2001 when congress passed the AUMF we were responding to it's a very different organization as you say scott and um, i know that several of the experts whose work i've reviewed have attributed that to zawahiri's leadership as compared to bin laden's but al qaeda has actually grown tremendously it's just in more regions and focused more locally so if you think of al qaeda in terms of what threat is it having more broadly on counterterrorism you know the the lack of huge dramatic attacks on the west does not mean that it is not still presenting a serious terrorist threat that may be in a less direct sense also a serious threat to US national security
3: yeah i mean i think your your point natalie is a really important one and i've been just struck by the sort of how different the cultural context is of uh, Bin Laden's death and Zawahiri's death, I was reminded uh, that Bin Laden's death was initially heralded of all people by uh, The Rock on Twitter, which I had forgotten about. Truly, a great moment in American politics. Apparently, we still don't hundred percent know how it was that that happened, but there's kind of nothing comparable. I mean, people were you know celebrating in the streets. I think that you know if you asked most people. Uh, today, who Eminel Zawahiri was on the street, most people would not have an answer <laughs> for you, that the the visibility is just not the same. Part of that has to do with his different role in the organization and how, you know, international politics and the war on terror have changed. Part of that has to do with perhaps his particular personality. Um, but I do think that, you know, if we're, since Alan, since you, you started by noting that there's kind of a nice bookend of Bin Laden's death under the Obama administration and al-Zawahiri's death under the Biden administration, just how far it is we've come and how diminished in significance a milestone like this seems, which is not to say that it isn't significant, but just that the, you know, the sort of domestic political aspect of it seems quite toned down compared to what it it had would have been uh in a in a previous era. I mean, I don't think I'm not even sure if it will stay above the fold on the New York Times for longer than this morning.
2: So I, I have a I have a bunch of follow-up questions for all of you. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I want to start by responding or maybe asking Scott about something that he said. You know, Scott, so you you mentioned that the killing of Al-Zawahiri is a is a kind of proof of concept for this. Uh, I think he called it the, the beyond the horizon strategy or above the horizon. Over the or, horizon. Over the horizon. Over the horizon. Or horizon. Or over the, the over the rainbow counterterrorism approach. Take your preposition. But yeah, yeah. Over the horizon. Um, and, and that's definitely one way to spin it. But another way to spin it, it strikes me, is that the fact that Al-Zawahiri was hiding out in like a nice house in Kabul, not in the mountainous areas, you know, on the Afghan-Pakistan border shows that the Taliban cannot be trusted as, I mean, forget partner, or just as not a sponsor of the most notorious terrorist organization of the last hundred years. And that it was therefore a mistake, frankly, for the United States to withdraw or to continue the the planned withdrawal and to do so so precipitously. And that maybe we should have stayed, you know, kind of quote unquote, light footprint style. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm sure I, I'm not sure I agree with this argument overall, but it does strike me that that is at least as plausible a way of viewing, not the killing of Zawel here, which is obviously a tactical success, but the very fact that he was like hanging out in Kabul as
0: a proof of concept of the uh, over the horizon strategy.
2: I I mean, am am I wrong?
0: No, I mean, people are going to make hay with it for that reason, although that's actually not the criticism I would focus on. I mean, there you're getting at really the the kind of competing claims uh, between the United States and the Taliban, we've already seen come forward saying each was in violation of the withdrawal agreement that the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban. The Taliban says, look, you're in violation, United States, not us, because our agreement said we're going to keep Al Qaeda from launching military operations that threaten the United States from Afghan territory. Not that you know this list of people will never be allowed in the country again. And there's no sign that they were actually involved in planning any attacks on the United States. The United States haven't suffered any direct military attacks. I mean, is the United States really supposed to wait while the head of Al-Qaeda hangs out in like a nice Kabul townhouse? That just seems kind of unrealistic. Well, I, I think the point here is that when you're negotiating this agreement, There's a lot of deliberate ambiguities about how you handle difficult scenarios, right? It's politically difficult for the Taliban to say these people that we have certain relationships with longstanding for a long time, we're going to throw them out in the cold, despite no matter what our various factions within the Taliban say to get an agreement with the United States. It's hard for the United States to say, all right, we're going to accept to some degree the which... Uh, Al-Qaeda might still have a presence in Afghanistan. Our big focus is on them not being able to set up training camps or conduct cross-border operations or be a haven for people who are, do. we do know have committed or are planning attacks. And, you know, it's, we never know 100% what the actual underlying facts are because they're likely highly classified about what exactly Salihiro was actually doing if he was involved with planning some sort of new attack on the United States. Worth noting, historically, Zawahiri actually was a guy who advocated for a much more localist view for Al-Qaeda, focusing on, I believe, either his native Egypt, or at least a place he spent a lot of time, Egypt. I can't remember if he was Egyptian by birth. Um, but really advocating for, thank you, really advocating for a focus on Egypt and the Middle East region back in the 1990s, as opposed to the United States. That was much more Bin Laden's view. So it's not implausible that maybe he didn't care about the United States, now that they really weren't in his immediate orbit that he was focused on. We don't, We don't really know. And the agreement specifically left a little bit of ambiguity that both parties can say, hey, you know, this is outside the scope of the agreement as we understood it. And there's the sort of agreement that's not legally binding. It's never going to be before a judge. It all exists uh, in the eyes of the beholder. And so I'm not surprised to see them both kind of trot it out and say the side was violating it. And in some ways, both are right or both are wrong, just depending on how you read the probably deliberately ambiguous terms that were put in there precisely to reach agreement around these difficult issues.
1: I think the other issue this touches on um, with respect to the over the horizon strategy is the fact that this strike appears to have been taken by the CIA rather than the military, uh, despite the fact that the military had drones in the region. As one of you referenced, um, the Department of Defense has a very, very bad track record of late in killing civilians with drone strikes, um, including in Kabul. But I will also encourage people, if they haven't already, to read a long series that the New York Times did, investigative journalism series on drone strikes and failures by DOD to reveal a pattern of strikes um, by Asmat Khan and um, a couple of co-authors. But it's interesting to me, you know, CIA strikes are made under different legal authority and with different standards of input than our military strikes. And so if this is a signal that You know, having withdrawn from from Afghanistan, um, that our counterterrorism strategy is going to rely most, or you know, nearly entirely on the CIA rather than on the military. That has implications as well, including for transparency into conduct.
0: I totally agree with that. The one thing I would note is, you know, I wouldn't be too quick to attribute the. In fact, CIA was involved here over DOD to discrepancy in capability. You know, DOD drone operations just operate at a very different scale. That's part of the different numbers. There's a much higher tempo of operations uh, and much narrower window. I mean, this was an operation that was planned over several months with close surveillance of the target. Uh, and so there's reason to believe like DOD would have been totally capable of executing a similar strike, at least in terms of if it has similar capabilities. Uh, there are other explanations for the CIA would be involved. One is that not Clear where exactly this drone is based in the region. There aren't a lot of friendly places. It's quite possible that a neighboring country or maybe some party in Afghanistan, who knows, is willing to host a covert uh, U.S. presence, but not an overt military presence. Uh, and it's very hard to have a covert military presence um, because of a variety of legal and political characteristics. So CIA tends to do that sort of thing. We also have this Ninja rocket, which has never been officially acknowledged by the U.S. government that was used here, which is an anti personnel weapon. Like it's designed to kill one person. Uh, it's like you know, assassination device, essentially. I don't know to the extent to which DOD operates that as opposed to CIA or is trained to operate that. So there's a lot of different factors here that could have entered in. And the fact that this is all done in close nexus with what is now very sensitive intelligence collection in a hostile environment, probably using a variety of methods. Uh, and so CIA tends to be better equipped to do that than DOD. So I kind of tend to lean on those factors more than the idea that there might be a capabilities gap or an intent gap in DoD. You're certainly right; the tempo is different for different types of operations. But this one, you know, if DoD were to try and do this, I feel like they might be able to get similar results if they were had the same level of training and equipment.
1: Yeah, I actually, I actually wasn't suggesting that it was a capability issue. I was suggesting that this is an indication of what our counterterrorism strategy might look like, which is to say, much more in the intelligence realm and directed by. The CIA, which has really serious implications for transparency, decision making, and what legal authorities are being deployed
2: to take the strikes. Before we wrap up, I, I want to ask one last question, and this is actually based on something Quinta said earlier, um, which is her observation, and I think it's correct that the response to the death of Al Zawahiri is so profoundly different than that of Bin Laden, and that you know we'll probably not be talking about this tomorrow, or at least you know not those of us who aren't foreign policy nerds. And so I wonder, given that. How best should we see this operation? You know, should we see it as an indication that, you know, maybe to Scott's point, counterterrorism is is back in some form. There's going to be a robust over the horizon campaign against Al Qaeda uh, or other targets. You know, whatever whatever ISIS is up to these days and future terrorist groups. Or should we think of this more as, look, it's a mop up operation. The United States was never going to give up uh, chasing after the the people who plotted and caused 9/11. But really, we should not be distracted from the fact that the real action, you know, as as our next two segments uh, attest to, is great power politics between the United States and Russia and the United States and China. And really, counterterrorism, we should not expect anything particularly exciting except the, you know, occasional targeted killing that pops up for six hours and then we move on.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I don't know the answer. I'm curious what everyone else's thoughts are. I will say, uh, since I made that comment about this being above the fold, I double checked. It is the ma- the uh, lead story on today's print paper of the New York Times. But uh, when we were recording, so 3pm Eastern Time on Tuesday, August 2nd, it has been bumped from the top of the New York Times page by Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit, which we will discuss later in the show. And it's not even, you know, Zawari's death isn't even the lead story in the section about al <laughs> The The lead story is analysis for the Taliban, a new era of isolation has arrived, which I think suggests that, you know, this this is, it's kind of situating it within the the broader question of, you know, interstate dynamics, right, rather than a question of terrorism operations.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair point to note that counterterrorism generally just isn't the priority, certainly for the public and frankly, for the Biden administration it was previously. I do think this strike has greater political salience than... You know, for example, the targeting of a number of ISIS leaders that we've seen take place in Syria by both the Biden administration and the Trump administration in recent years. And that is simply that the Biden administration has a bad record on Afghanistan, that it's desperate defects. Um, You know, the collapse last year of the U.S.-backed government there, um, the horrible humanitarian crisis at the airport, it remains a real politically problematic mark on its record even though, you know, talking points in the White House and other folks don't necessarily like to acknowledge that. Um, And I think that, you know, this is one point that we're going to see pulled out again and again to show, no, in fact, this part of our strategy works. We can hit these people from afar, just like we said we would. We can tamp down their terrorist ambitions if needed. Uh, The one thing, point of caution, I would actually know on that, because I'm not sure that that's actually a totally accurate representation, is that this is an operation that took place over several months with close surveillance of a target using very advanced technology and a lot of intelligence assets. In other words, it was really expensive. It's not the type of thing you can replicate at scale. And it's not clear that there are enough big targets to operate operational capability that this would actually impact al-Qaeda's operations. But notably, like al-Qaeda just doesn't appear to be the threat it once was, nor does it appear to be doing things that threatening in Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of that probably has to do more with local dynamics and organizational dynamics than major policy changes. But you know, this is going to be a talking point for the Biden administration saying, our strategy in Afghanistan- Worked. And it allows us to retain our, our counterterrorism priorities and still achieve our objectives there. But those objectives are still probably really pared down because they don't appear to be intent on maintaining a capability to continually suppress, suppress terrorist operations. They're talking about surgical strikes at specific leaders. And this is the only time we've seen them use that over the horizon capability in a whole year. So, you know, I think it really does reflect what you're talking about, Alan, like counterterrorism just isn't the priority for the administration it once was, they need to check the box so they can still do it. And they're feeling a little defensive about it in the context of Afghanistan. That's why this is significant, I think. But all around, it pretty clearly is an indication, uh, particularly the last year, which nothing really has happened up until now, that counterterrorism just isn't really the big geostrategic driver that it once was. I will say before we break, uh, we recorded the episode of the Lawfare podcast on this with Dan Byman, which is a great conversation, myself and Ben Wittis, so encourage folks to check that out. Going from troubling situations abroad to troubling situations at home, Uh, let us talk about some foreign intervention in the United States, specifically of the political variety, because this past week we saw a very interesting legal document drop out of, I believe, the middle district of Florida in federal court there, where the Justice Department has indicted one Mr. Ionov, an individual now resident in Moscow, once resident in the city of St. Petersburg, I believe, or at least operational there. Where, for involvement in supporting a variety of political groups and political candidates, many of whom are unnamed in the indictment, although we've seen a lot of chatter about who they most likely are in the subsequent coverage. Essentially alleging that at the government of Russia's instruction and in coordination with them, uh, he was supporting these groups to try and support political instability and controversy in the United States of the last several years, a pattern that we have seen discussed for many years following the 2016 elections, uh, in particular as Russian involvement in that election was such an investigatory focus for a long time. And this indictment is another kind of notable development, it seems, in that, or at least maybe the first big development that's been on our radar in a while. Quinta, I know you dug really deep into this indictment and have been following this case for a long time. How significant is this really? Does it tell us something new about what Russia has been and may yet be involved in interfering in U.S. politics?
3: There's a fair amount in this indictment that I think uh, folks who were paying close attention already were aware of. And I actually I don't want to give myself too much credit. Uh, Some of this was new to me, but apparently was already familiar to folks who had been closely following the uh, Texas and California secession movements which listeners will be shocked to hear, turns out we're getting some coordination from folks linked to the FSB, namely uh, one Alexander Ianov. Uh, so the indictment specifically uh, notes that Yanov was giving support to a group of California secessionists, one of whom is now living in Moscow. Uh, that's a big twist there. But I think there's also some stuff that is new um, when it comes to Inav's coordination, um, it seems, directly on behalf of the FSB and in coordination with the FSB with various, uh, I think it's fair to say, sort of far left, to some extent, sort of pan-Africanist socialist groups in putting out comments criticizing the United States. So in one example, uh, in around the 2016 Olympics from which Russia was banned and participating, Inov basically uh, asked this particular group if they could put out a statement saying that they supported uh, Russia's playing and that they were criticizing you know, the decision not to let Russia play. So that that's kind of a uniquely direct instance of political uh, interference because you literally have someone who's passing along essentially a statement from the FSB saying, can you please say this? Now, I think it's important to keep in mind that just because this seems to have happened as alleged in the indictment doesn't mean that it was influential. Um, and I want to give a shout out here to uh, Kevin Collier, who's a cybersecurity reporter at at CNN, who, when I was tweeting about this, made a very good note, you know, take this this page uh, put up by this organization criticizing uh, Russia being blackballed from the Olympics. You know, we have no sense of how many people saw that page. There aren't any social media metrics available for it. He couldn't Kevin couldn't find any tweets or Facebook posts or anything like that. And I think that's a good reminder that, you know, a lot of stuff that can seem sort of really spooky and in in all senses of the word and creepy uh, when it comes to interference from foreign governments, a lot of it can just be shouting into the void. You know, another really important example here is... There's this odd little interlude where Ianoff and the FSB are working to support a political candidate for local office in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, They're very pleased with themselves. They say, you know, we think this is unprecedented. It's not really clear to me and what about it would be unprecedented. Um, But again, this is a candidate for local office. Um, It does seem that they give her some support and perhaps funding, but it seems like, again, she's she's not named. She's referred to as she, but is not named in the indictment. Um, you can do a little bit of detective work if it is the person who it seems to be that candidate won the Democratic primary, but went on or won the primary, but went on to lose by uh, an enormous amount, got basically under 20% of the vote in the general election. So is that really an example of, you know, dastardly Russian cunning? I don't think so. I mean, it's certainly it's notable that the FSB is engaged in this activity, and I think it's significant that this person has been indicted for it. And I'm curious whether more indictments will follow because it's notable that the charge on which he was indicted is actually a conspiracy charge, uh, 18 U.S.C. 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States. But I do think it's important that we not, you know, get out over our skis and become, you know, anxious about how. The creeping hand of of Putin is uh, manipulating everything,
1: yeah. One thing that struck me though about the indictment is that the groups that were being supported um by Ionov were aware that he was Russian and he was supported yes. by the fsB. So to me, you know I, I it it is certainly the case that we should read this indictment with an understanding that the seriousness of the conduct and the degree to which Ianoff and all of the entities that were supporting him were trying to interfere is not equivalent to there having been a tremendous amount of impact. Um, but at the same time, the fact that there were American citizens, according to the indictment, that were happily... Um, cooperating and taking support and money and and direction from someone they knew to be an agent of the Russian government i think is is very disturbing and and should not be taken lightly and there's you know t- to the extent that that is not taken seriously it really risks normalizing that sort of support in the interest of you know, bolstering your own political prospects or or sense of support. I thought it was interesting and sort of a random detail that he had encouraged one of these groups to draft a statement and send it to the UN, um, which suggests a, a different type of influence that they were trying to to have. Um, but but I think that definitely agreed impact is an important thing to think about here. But the the nature of the conduct, the reach and the sort of aspirations behind it, I think, are are really, really serious and important to take seriously.
3: Yeah, I think the, the UN statement is an interesting example. So I think what you're referring to is this is a statement about a, a 2015, I want to say, of a genocide of Africans in the United States. And when I saw that, I was puzzled, because my first thought was, was there some, you know, African racial or ethnic group that was being attacked in the United States in 2015? Reading, I, doing some Googling, reading uh, the actual text of that statement, which you can find, it seems like what they're referring to is police violence against black Americans. But I think that the the language that they're using there is, is also really interesting and I think suggestive of maybe a lack of deep understanding of American politics uh, and the the sort of particular nuances of dynamics, because if you put out that statement and, you know, it's not clear, perhaps it's not going to be clear to other folks at the UN either.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work.
2: So I, I want to say a couple of things about this. You know, First, I, I want to, I want to say that I think Natalie's point is very well taken, which is that the part of this that really is disturbing, or at least the part of this that at least is disturbing to me, is the fact that there are Americans who seem comfortable getting help from people that they know are agents of a foreign power and are considering playing dirty. I mean, we shouldn't be super surprised by this, given that in 2016, President Trump basically asked the Russians to hack... Hillary Clinton's emails, um, but it is bad that you know we are still having this problem you know, six years down, down the line. Uh, and it is certainly bad that at least one political party does not seem to have a strong norm against this sort of thing, right? Though it does appear to be that there are lots of people across the political spectrum, especially on the extremes that are willing to get and accept this kind of help. At the same time, I will say I, I, I do have trouble getting like super upset at Russia about this, Um, Just for a couple of reasons. First, none of this seems particularly effective. Like this does not seem like Russia galaxy brain kind of stuff. Like these all these people all kind of seem like ding dongs. And it's just really unclear how much, if anything, this is accomplishing. Um, You know, also, and here, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to make some false equivalency. I'm not trying to, you know, I recall when we were all offended, rightfully so, when Trump said, you know, Americans are killers too. And why should we be criticizing foreign autocracies? At the same time, this does strike me as the sort of political meddling and disinformation that countries do to destabilize each other. And look, if that's so bad, we should just all stop doing that. But I I have to assume that, I mean, we know that the CIA did stuff like this for decades and decades. Like, I, I have to assume they're doing the same thing. And. You know, again, I'm I'm not trying to both sides of this right. The one difference is that Russia is a terrible autocracy, and America is, for all its flaws, a functioning liberal democracy. Um, and so, in in that respect, you know, I think it's maybe a little more okay when we do it. But I don't know. I guess I I just I I always I always find it difficult to get too offended when or or too exercised or morally outraged when DOJ brings uh, espionage prosecution, which is essentially what this is. Because like, well, espionage is like a thing we do and it's okay under international law. And I've always found it weird that this thing that's okay under international law that everyone does suddenly becomes a domestic crime. And like, I I conceptually understand the difference, but again, I don't know, tell me I'm wrong and that I should be really, really offended
0: here. I will come to the defense of our of our comrades uh in Moscow on, on this one as to why I think this may be more serious to be taken. Although for that I will correct you, in uh, intelligence gathering is actually not allowed under national law. People just do it anyway. But that's why it's covert. But just to, just to set that aside for the time being, what I think is happening here or could be happening here, and again, I think this is really, we have to see this as the tip of the iceberg. We don't know whether this is a, a, a non, non-event of an iceberg or potentially a significant iceberg uh, in terms of what this broader conspiracy is and the broader strategic effort that led to it, is that you see kind of like a, a, a double-sided effect of some of this stuff, right? Right uh you see this effort to take in this case often uh both kind of like radical left or fringe left and fringe right political movements for various efforts a- and tie them to this foreign support right I think that that has the potential to undermine a lot of different and have a lot of different political effects on both sides of the equation. On the one hand, you're saying, well, we're encouraging these fringe behaviors. It's easier for people to point to those and be outraged by them and get them to do things that are controversial and highly public. And we can steer that in a particular way, we being the Russians in this case, steer that in a particular way that lets our other components of our information operations or maybe just the natural media ecosystem of the United States exaggerate these things and say, oh, look at these radical people on the left saying the United States is committing genocide. Look at these radical folks on the right trying to secede California from the union. Let's amplify those even more and feed into the ecosystem because these groups are being promoted, encouraged, pursue that sort of behavior. On the flip side, you also see political movements that are now being revealed to show have ties to foreign intelligence, perhaps knowingly so, in ways that I think is going to subject them to similar credibility challenges on the other side of the political spectrum, where people can say, look at these far left groups, they're taking money from Russia, people complain about, you know, the Trump administration, whoever having ties to Russia, but this left group is in fact actually taking money from Russia. And they're not even indicted in this conspiracy, they're just an unindicted co-conspirator, we all figured out from the media reports. You know, it's got this sort of multiple applications and multiple valences that really feed into this atmosphere of distrust that we know Russia has been trying to cultivate for a long time. Now, are each of these like the thing that's going to break the system? No, definitely not. They're all small threads in a much bigger effort. But I don't think that means they're necessarily insignificant. And I'm hesitant to completely dismiss them out of hand, although they do seem kind of absurd on their face. The other thing that makes me nervous here is I also don't want to overreact. Like These movements... I don't agree with them. I think they seem kind of wacky. These people have every right to say these things, right? It was very stupid of them to take money from foreign governments, but they're completely legitimate acts of freedom of speech. And when we think about the ways people approach the civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s uh, and other movements saying, oh, no, ties to foreign governments, what's motivating these, and use that as an effort to try and undermine them, I hesitate. We lean too far about leaning far in that direction in response to activities like this on Russia's behalf. And sometimes I question, maybe that's part of Russia's strategy as well, in terms of undermining general uh, cohesion and confidence in our system of government. Um, So I think it is more serious. I'm not sure, not because it's clearly aiming in one direction, but because it has such potential damaging effects in all sorts of different directions that just make me really nervous. So I agree. I don't think any of this is catastrophic, but I think it deserves to be taken seriously.
3: Yeah, so two points in response to that, which may kind of cut against one another. The first one is, I think it's worth emphasizing just how small and fringe some of the groups who are not named but appear to be identified in the indictment are. One of them, uh, based on identifying information in the indictment, seems to be, has been uh, reported on by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as being a group called Black Hammer, uh, which is a uh, sort of some very small extremist organization in Atlanta that was recently implicated in a pretty dramatic murder investigation. I think the, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said it, it's been called a cult by many people. So this is like this is not you know these are not folks who are you know within anywhere within the sort of U.S. political mainstream or even on the fringes. They're kind of fringes of the fringes, right? Like these are it's very sort of odd groups. The other point, and this is why I think it it might counter what I just said, um, is that I was very interested by the decision in the indictment to identify the Americans as unindicted co-conspirators. And I did wonder what the thinking was behind that, precisely because, Scott, as you say, um, I think it... Would look very bad for the Justice Department if it were to, say, prosecute these folks for uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States or anything similar Um, in, in, you know, not in small part, because a lot of the people named here or a lot of the people who seem to be identified here. Um, seem to be members of left-leaning organizations uh, whose membership is primarily Black and identifies explicitly as socialist. And of course, the echoes of, you know, co are are very, very real here. So I will be interested to see where this goes and if the department kind of continues to hold back on uh, investigating or prosecuting those folks, um, precisely because there may be a recognition of exactly what you're saying, Scott, that, you know, that's really going down a path that you, you don't want to step down.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just say as a technical matter, the fact that they're currently listed as unindicted co-conspirators doesn't mean that there can't be a superseding indictment that that does indict them, which does not detract from your point. But I'll just mention the, the other thing that's sort of interesting on this point is I noted in the Washington Post reporting of this, um, there was a statement from FBI special agent in charge, David Walker, who said in a press conference, this indictment is just the first of our responses, but it will not be the last so it'll be interesting to see, you know, I I, I don't read that um, as saying that the, you know, unindicted co-conspirators are going to be indicted, but it, it does seem to me to be a pretty clear sign that we'll be seeing more movement in this area.
0: Just one last point before we go off this topic worth mentioning, the the individuals and organizations mentioned in this indictment, uh, including this kind of anti-globalist movement that's based in Moscow, focusing kind of support secessionist movements around the world, not just in California and Texas, but in other places too, evidently, although I'm not sure where exactly, has also been sanctioned by the Treasury Department on the same day the indictment dropped. Uh, And that's kind of notable because it's indicating that it's an ongoing effort and that they are making potentially US individuals and political actors, uh, you know, putting them at legal risk if they choose to cooperate with those movements moving forward. You don't see many foreign sanctions that really have a strong intersection with domestic. Groups, there was a period after 9-11 that was done more often, particularly in regard to Islamic charities, it raised a lot of constitutional questions, a lot of policy heartburn, um, all of which I sympathize with, although most of it was ultimately upheld on judicial review. And this is kind of an interesting move back in that direction, potentially, for at least those groups that do have ties to that that movement and other movements that may fall in that same sanctions bucket. So that may actually end up being the more notable forward-looking policy move here more than the indictment itself.
1: Yeah, and there was actually one other interesting detail that the Treasury Department put out when it added this group to the uh, specially designated nationals list, which was that that Ionov had sought to collaborate with another sanctioned Russian organization about the feasibility of directly supporting, I'm quoting here, about the feasibility of directly supporting a specific candidate in a 2022 U.S. gubernatorial election. So we don't know who that gubernatorial candidate was going to be but I think it's sort of on the point I was making earlier Um, it's important to be a little circumspect about what impact this may or may not have had and you know even to the extent there is a huge disconnect between the degree of aspirational impact and the actual impact um, it deserves to be taken very seriously
3: well speaking of policy heartburn how's that for your transition. Excellent.
0: Well done. Thank you. You know, I went back and re-listened to our first episode recently, or I think it was our second episode, and that was the first time we bothered you about not having segues, so it's been a consistent theme <laughs> our entire run. I've been working <laughs> on really it. You've really well lately, I, I, thank I we you. all appreciate it, so thank the, you, Quint.
3: Thank you. The,
0: the
2: bullying of Quinta Jurassic about her Yeah, her it's
3: it's been successful. <laughs> Speaking of policy heartburn, Nancy Pelosi, you may have heard, is in Taiwan and boy, is it causing heartburn among members of the Chinese government, among American foreign policy experts, among people mad at those various and sundry entities and individuals. Um, So Pelosi has been planning this for a while. She had meant to do it previously, and the trip was delayed because of COVID, Uh, her having COVID, I believe. Now she is there. Uh, The the Biden administration has made some statements, or at least it did so ahead of time, kind of Suggesting that they would maybe appreciate it if she didn't go, uh, worrying that this would stoke tensions with China, you know, potentially hinting that, you know, if the the US is ready to recognize Taiwan, um, it seems that the administration has now been kind of trying to communicate to the Chinese government that No, they can't control what Nancy Pelosi does. Yes, she really is the head of another branch of government. Uh, From the Times reporting, it doesn't seem quite clear to me whether or not that messaging has gone through. So I think, you know, this story has a lot of different elements. And one of the elements is just the kind of meta story of, are folks right to worry that this could be sort of needlessly provocative? And is Pelosi making the right decision in going in the first place? Um, So, Scott, let me hand it over to you.
0: Sure. You know, it's a really hard calculus here, in part because the United States and China are constantly involved in a big messaging game here, right? I mean, they're constantly both China trying to message, hey, anything you do here could push us to start a war and invade Taiwan. Both to deter kind of provocative behavior. The United States is constantly pushing up against that saying, hey, we're going to keep doing slightly more provocative things. And the Biden administration has not been shy about this. We're going to keep doing more provocative things to underscore China. We're not intimidated by you. And this is kind of the ultimate step in that direction by the United States so far. Now, it's notable the Biden administration doesn't appear to have been 100 percent behind Pelosi doing this. And in my mind, that's for kind of reasonable reasons. We're in a few months span ahead of the 20th Party Congress in China, which is a major domestic political event, arguably the most significant one for the current Chinese leadership, where they are likely to be politically particularly sensitive to looking weak on foreign policy matters, particularly because this generation of leaders is really focused on this kind of wolf warrior mentality of looking super strong and projecting strength internationally. And so this is kind of like Exactly the most provocative message you can send at the moment at which China is most sensitive. I think it's still unlikely, uh, although my record on this is not great, uh, so I, hopefully I'm not wrong, unlikely to lead to like a major crisis. But China's is certainly, certainly going to have to respond in some way. And I'm just not sure what the payoff is for that. So I have to say, I, I, I come off on the more skeptical side of this being a worthwhile move for Pelosi to pursue from a national strategy perspective. Individually, maybe she has reasons to do it, domestic politics. And she also is somebody who has been outspoken about Chinese human rights abuses and other aspects of Chinese policy. She doesn't like really her whole political career to her credit in many regards. And so maybe part of a personal, you know, campaign that she wants to pursue while she feels like she's in a position to do so still in office. And obviously she's, I think in her early 80s now, she may feel like this might be her last chance to do something this uh, high profile. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into this, but you know, from a national strategy perspective, it's hard for me to see it balancing out to being a, a good move.
2: So I'm I'm going to pull a Ben Wittes and agree with my co-hosts and just in a much more extreme way. Scott, I think you're totally right, but I wouldn't say that the appropriate response is skepticism. I think this is just bananas and there's just no obvious reason to do this. Uh, and, you know, I will say, I mean, I think I think Tom Friedman um, had a really good opinion piece in the New York Times about this that we will link to. You know, the, the, the tone of it was a little... It was a little arrogant and inside. The looks on Alan's co-host's faces right now are oh, priceless. Look, do you think I like? Do you think I like saying nice things about Tom Friedman? Come on, um, no. But I, I thought I thought he got it You're right, which is that this is incredibly inflammatory. It is careless. There's no obvious reason to do it. It undercuts the president. It undercuts the president of your own party. And it's not necessary. If you want to support Taiwan, we can totally support Taiwan. We can support Taiwan to the hilt. You know, We can start World War Three over Taiwan if we want to. That's a separate conversation. But if you're going to do that, there's a way of doing that. And that is not having the Speaker of the House who, while, you know, obviously an important American political figure is not in the diplomatic chain of command. Go out to 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 taiwan and and i 'll just remind Democrats right that they were very upset, and I think rightly so when back in the Obama administration, Republicans you know invited uh, you know Benjamin Netanyahu to give a fairly inflammatory speech before Congress when it was pretty clear that Netanyahu and Obama were not in agreement on some key foreign policy issues. I thought that was inappropriate then, and I think this is inappropriate now to be clear right i, I don 't want this to be misconstrued as saying that you know, there's something unconstitutional about what Nancy Pelosi is doing. She is entitled to do that, right, both by as being an American citizen and also within the constitutional system that although it gives a lot of power to the president for foreign policy, clearly contemplates some role for Congress there. And I can imagine, you know, we can come up with some hypotheticals where this would really be appropriate, but I just, what are they doing and why are they doing this? What is being gained here exactly?
1: I tend to agree. I mean, I as you are playing the role of uh, Benjamin Wittes saying things in more extreme terms than the rest of us, I will uh, maintain my own appropriate role.
2: The Tammy Wittes approach.
1: <laughs> I, I did find it interesting that you know, I, I read um, Speaker Pelosi's op ed in the Washington Post, um, curious for for what she was going to say. It's her commitment to democracy and human rights in China, the fact that it is historic, it is a a historical theme in her career, the fact that she's been an activist on this for a long time. You know, that is, that's, good um it's it's very different than being the speaker of the house and going in a moment like this and going in what seems to be a contradiction of the policy planning of the executive branch which is typically the one in charge of our foreign policy she did not in her article and i thought this was a really notable omission talk about why other types of things that could have been done to show support for taiwan were not enough, or you know, was there a sense that we had exhausted all other options for showing strong support for Taiwan? It it doesn't seem so. It, I don't know. I mean, surely there were other options for sending a strong statement that did not involve physically landing in Taiwan, knowing that it would provoke this sort of reaction, both from our own government and from the Chinese. And I think from what I've read. Um, there are several analysts who are not quite sure how much Taiwan wanted this visit either. So, I, you know, I think that was a really notable omission to me. It's And it's not clear also why this needed to be right now. I didn't get anything from the op-ed about why this was so urgent and this had to be the moment to do it. So those are both features of the analysis or the decision to go that I would think would be really crucial that I have not seen an answer on in terms of justifying the decision.
3: Yeah, I'll second the why now question. I noted uh while reading her op-ed in the post that the, the post's editorial board had a piece, I think not from this week, maybe from last week when it was, you know, had been reported that she was considering this, saying uh essentially, we think that Pelosi should go, but maybe not this very second. Uh, which I thought was notable because the the post editorial board has kind of traditionally taken a sort of muscular approach in terms of defending democracy around the world. Um, so that you you might very well expect them to back a, a move like this on on behalf of a figure like Pelosi, but that you know that they were saying come on, like now, now maybe it's sort of needlessly provocative. There's a lot going on. Wait a couple months. Wait until the party Congress is, is over. Um, and so I I also was struck by that.
0: You know, I do think there might, it's a possible answer to the why now question. Uh, you know, I don't think we know for certain, but I suspect part of it might be, because again, I think this may be her last chance to go as Speaker, right? The next few months are going to be all about elections. I think it's hard for the Speaker to do something too close to elections. And frankly, she's probably have a lot of other duties getting legislation through the House while they still have a Democratic majority and Democratic Senate. You know, this is a period where things are still slow in Congress. People are still on, on vacation on and recess uh, or just coming out of it. And so it's kind of the best moment. And she's reading the writing on the wall and sees odds are she's not going to be speaker again in this next Congress. And then she may not be Speaker again, because I think, again, it's unlikely she's able to stay in office much longer. So, you know, there's a personal motivation. That doesn't make it a good motivation, but it's personal motivation. But it it could be good from the perspective, or, or at least from her perspective, of a policy drive in that she obviously really believes that the United States needs to back Taiwan. It's very clear from a Washington Post op-ed. She's been very consistent about that really for several decades in a variety of respects. And congressional support for Taiwan actually is a little bit of the question mark in U.S.-Taiwan policy more than anything else. Um, You know, the United States doesn't have a treaty commitment to Taiwan's military defense. It has a statute, the Taiwan Relations Act, which guarantees Taiwan a lot of treatment, but actually specifically says Congress needs to authorize military support, or, or strongly suggests at least Congress needs to authorize any sort of military intervention to back Taiwan. And the United Congress has not authorized that. It did used to several decades ago, but that authorization was revoked in the 1970s. And so that question, and it's worth noting, like a war with China over Taiwan is probably the one scenario where most presidential administrations have acknowledged the president can't do it without Congress's support. Whether they'll stick to that, if you know push comes to shove, big question. But it's the most troubling constitutional terrain in which a president can act. So with all those factors, like congressional support really matters. And we're in an era now where we see a lot more open talk, critical of U.S. backing of international alliances, much more non-interventionist, much more, if you're critical of it, isolationist view from both political parties. So here's a chance for her to send a really strong message as the leader of the majority in Congress. Hey, Congress has Taiwan's back and don't forget it, China. If push comes to shove, you're not just dealing with Biden, you're dealing with likely the entire Congress. And that only really has that effect if she's still Speaker. I don't know if that all adds up. To a case, but I do think it's a maybe. That's that's the best justification I can come up with as to why do it now.
2: I, I will just say as a final thought: if this is Nancy Pelosi's last hurrah as Speaker of the House, doing a diplomatic tour because she, she likes to feel the power of the foreign policy of the Speaker of the House, I have nothing but honestly contempt for that. Like, there's just way too much in American politics right now of political figures who have been in office for a long time and have done. Good jobs, right? Have done, you know, served honorably, hanging on and doing things because they feel like they have earned it. And whether this is the Speaker of the House, whether this is senators, whether this is Supreme Court justices, whether this is presidents, right? This, 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 uh, this pattern of well, I just want to go out in style is appalling, frankly. And while I understand the psychology behind that, right? We're all human. I'm sure I feel the same way if I was in that position. Part of being a honorable politician, a, you know, a statesperson is to control those instincts. And, you know, maybe that's not the reason. Maybe there's some strategery going on here, and I'm always open to that. But increasingly, this this seems
0: just really hard to defend. Alan, this is your last episode of rational security, so you will have to make it count. This is your legacy. So remember that as we we circle around.
2: Three-hour object lesson. lesson. I'm just going to read my favorite children's books. I'll sing some songs. It's going to be amazing, guys.
0: (laughs) Well, folks, that brings us close to the end of our time for this week. But before we leave you for another week, we, of course, would not be rational security if we did not share with you some object lessons to ponder. Alan, what is your object lesson for this week, your final episode? What is your grand hurrah, (laughs) your flight to Taiwan, which is what I'm now calling the grand (laughs) hurrah for everyone moving forward, before you leave Lafayette, you get one flight to Taiwan. You know, so it's like
3: hiking it? the Appal- Appalachian Trail, you know?
1: Exactly.
2: Week, exactly. I just want to say last week, Scott said that when he heard about my uh, appendicitis, he was looking for a new co-host. Now, apparently, this is my last episode. <laughs> Scott, I thought you and I were friends. Don't worry, listeners, or worry, listeners, if uh, you really don't like me, I'm here for the, the... I'm not going anywhere.
0: It's not you. It's me, Minnesota. It's just so far away, and I can't <laughs> stand it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it is. It is far away um so my object lesson is in the category of you know uh, a moment of zen and it is a truly bizarre i don't even know what to call it like propaganda branding video out of russia that uh kind of made its way around the internet a week ago not created as far as i can tell by the russian government though created by like a pro-russian group but then like heavily publicized by the Russian government and various official Russian social media accounts. So I think we can say it is like endorsed by the Russian government. And it's this like super weird, quick montage of like some lovely parts about Russia, like ballet and uh, the Kremlin is an attractive piece of architecture with this uh, voiceover in this kind of really stereotypical, I'd say almost like offensive if it were not clearly authorized by the Russian government accent of this guy, just saying random stuff like ballet, cheap taxi, beautiful women, no cancel culture. (laughs) It just goes on and on. It is so profoundly bizarre. And of course it ends with move to Russia. Winter is coming. (laughs) It is. It's amazing. I like, you know, I, Occam's razor suggests that this was just created by ding dongs who don't know what they're doing, but it's <laughs> so insane that it's you kind of can't stop rewatching it, and so maybe it's brilliant it's it's amazing. we highly recommend it you know I don't usually try to to use Russian propaganda as my object lesson, but I feel confident that it is it is okay
0: to to spread this around it's It's amazing it's so distinctly Russian to have. Not so subtle threats embedded throughout your promotional <laughs> so video trying to get people to, people to so voluntarily come to your country. <laughs> I love it. And coming
1: soon, a new indictment with Alan Rosenstein as the <laughs> lightly-veiled, unindicted
2: co-conspirator. Yeah, did I
0: just, did I just accidentally, Am I
2: accidentally just turn myself into an agent of, of a foreign power? 371, <laughs> folks. Oh, no.
0: I hear Ionov is a Patreon supporter, so <laughs> unfortunately, you are right really on the hook for that one, buddy. It new, brings new meaning to material supporter. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Ooh, kind of the original meaning. We ripped that one off, but that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
3: Well, in comparison, my object lesson is kind of a bummer. So sorry to bring the mood down. Um,
2: uh, yes, back back to the Quinta, the, the classic Quinta sorry. object lesson.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is an incredible article in the Atlantic uh, by Annie Lowry, who's a staff writer there, called American Motherhood that is about her experience of pregnancy. She has two biological children. And it's basically just writing about how incredibly brutal her pregnancies were on her body for reasons that remain somewhat opaque, and that certainly, uh, from the way she writes it, could not have been predicted and sort of considering what that means in the wake of Dobbs and in the overturning of Roe as more and more people may be forced to carry pregnancies to term that they don't want to and, you know, the harm that that can visit on their bodies. And of course, she's writing here about two children whom she very, very much wanted to have. Um, it's a incredible and sobering read um, and I think is very, very thoughtful and searing at the same time. Um, so I'd highly recommend taking a look at it if you want to bring your mood down after watching uh, the Russian advertisement.
0: I will second that as heartily as like I can. I almost made the, that article my object lesson before I saw you beat me to a Quinto, but it is really phenomenal. Uh, and I think really a, a highlight of being kind of the sea of post-ops commentary. I thought it was, it was really exceptional.
1: Yeah, and I will also third it. Actually, um, I thought it was incredibly brave of her to write. Um, this is obviously an issue that she will be undoubtedly getting no end of hate mail about, and uh, she really got very personal about the extreme, extreme impact this had on her health um, and really how much her life was at risk. So, highly recommend.
0: I mean, no Tom Friedman, but you know what are you going to do, Alan? That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it is an amazing. It is an amazing. It is an amazing piece. I agree. Uh, well, for my object lesson, I'll 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 levy it up a little bit more. Actually, a little bit. I'm going to have two object lessons. I can't decide between one one more intense and one more lighthearted. I'll start with the intense one. If you're not watching the bear, you should be watching the bear. The bear is super intense. It's like in a weird way that you wouldn't think a show about cooking should be intense, but it's pretty awesome. And particularly if you are a food freak and you spend a lot of time thinking about recipes and cooking and ever feel the pressure of either working in a kitchen, which I did very, very briefly at one point in my life, or desperately trying to get food on your table before your one-year-old implodes, uh, which is a stress (laughs) I live with absolutely every night. And it's really, really beginning to weigh on me. This show captures it all so perfectly uh, and is a phenomenal watch, really well acted, just really phenomenal. Like I came in not wanting to watch and my wife talked me into it and it's really really great the second endorsement which is a little stranger is coming from the department of children's cinema once again because i along with my wife was looking for a new movie to show our kid having run through everything in disney plus and somehow we stumbled upon happy feet first which i do not recommend because that show, that movie really kind of creeped me out with a very hyper realistic cgi people but then we were like, well, what's this other movie about penguins we saw? A movie called Surf's Up from like 10 or 12 years ago, which is a movie about penguins surfing and in a surf competition. And it's so weird to watch because they do this really weird cinemagraphic style, but it's all CGI Ill- slash illustrated and these interviews with audio. And it took me like 20 minutes watching it to realize that it is a satire of surfer documentaries that are like a really established genre of like documentary film of these like very popular from the 70s through like today, I'm guessing I'll have only seen older ones about this unique style, of like people just being meditative and thinking about the beach and surfing and what it means. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. And this captures it perfectly with penguins being the main characters to the point that they have several professional surfers actually giving real interviews and they use the audio and put it in as penguin versions of themselves. <laughs> like it's really, really phenomenal to watch. I, I, I enjoyed it. My wife really enjoyed it. My kid kind of enjoyed it, but I think it's worth watching. (laughs) If you have a one-year-old who, like, you just need 10 minutes of stimulation, this is a good option. So I I will leave you with those two endorsements for this week. Natalie, what do you have for us this week?
1: Well, um, I recently rediscovered a cookbook that I've had several years that came out at the beginning of the Trump administration that has the delightful title... The Immigrant Cookbook, Recipes That Make America Great. And it is a compilation of recipes from um, largely well-established chefs and restaurateurs around the United States who are all themselves immigrants. I believe all themselves immigrants, certainly, all of whom have immigrant roots. And the other night I made a recipe by Zareen Khan, um, who's a Pakistani-American woman with a restaurant in California that was a fish curry recipe and i simply love making recipes from cuisines that i have a lot less familiarity with because the number of spices and ingredients and and the way in which they're prepared i think is really just this is going to sound cheesy but a really wonderful reflection of human ingenuity so it was very uplifting and there's a nice there're nice stories from each of the chefs in the cookbook. And there are a lot of really amazing recipes in it. So we will link to the book itself in the show notes and everyone should check it out.
0: Great recommendation. I love that cookbook. Wonderful. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0, though, is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security. Be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work, the written work of other lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the January 6th investigation, The Aftermath, hosted by our special guest, Natalie Orbit. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast, among other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music guest always was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, au revoir.